This is the weekend edition of Marginalia, a podcast where the pastors and staff at New City Church here in Cincinnati, Ohio, discuss the scribbles in the margins of our Sunday sermons as well as whatever else is going on in the life of the church. I'm Josh Rotano, and today I'm talking with Pastor Mike Prevatera. Mike, how are you? Good. Hello. I don't, uh, you know, I don't think we've seen each other since stay at home order has been announced. This may have been the longest in five years that I haven't seen you. Yeah. Is it well, no, bad? that's not true. I bet, uh, I bet we've had vacations and that kind of thing, but well, I don't know. Sabbatical. We've been taking this sabbatical. Oh, that's true. Maybe my sabbatical. Yeah. And also with us today is uh, pastor Brian. I have seen you, uh, coming in. Yeah. Just, just the other day, uh, physically distancing, but made some copies making copies yep well um as we get started today uh, we do have a favor to ask uh all of you at home that are listening to this um would you be willing to um subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts at spotify or uh, apple music or wherever it is that you go um help us out support us uh, by subscribing to the podcast as well as um getting on there and rating the podcast as well It'd be a big help uh, to the rest of us. Of course, if you like it and you want to share it with friends or family, please go ahead and do this uh, as well. Well, guys, it is National Karaoke Week uh, this week. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm just thinking, do you guys have a favorite, say, you know, guilty pleasure sing-along song or, or, or group or artist that you, uh, you'd like to do karaoke to? The song I've done karaoke to most is Getting Jiggy With It. By Will Smith. That's kind of my go-to. I also like the old song, If I Knew You Were Coming, I'd Have Baked a Cake. That's another favorite to karaoke. Hard to find that one, though. My guilty pleasure songs are two um, female pop icons, uh, Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson, and uh, what's the other? Uh, Call Me Maybe. I forget who, Carly Rae Jepsen. I really like those songs, uh, even though I really don't like anything else the artists do. Yeah, I've never I really love the song... Either. I love the song Party in the USA. Yes. That that's a good one. Too, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Josh, do you have a go-to? Yeah, I think I, uh, I still gravitate back with that sort of female pop icon kind of thing that you guys are describing. I think I could sing along to, um, to uh, Cindy Lauper uh, on a pretty, pretty regular basis. She's got a few singable songs. But you, do you guys remember the song? Um, I guess it was the pretty. Ten, no, the Proclaimers, uh, 500 Miles, and I Would Walk 500 Miles, that one. Uh, that's a great kind of sing-along karaoke totally. song. Well, you know, at Ridgehaven, the PCA's camp, there's like a whole dance. They do it all the time, like at the Barnes dance. It's, there's a whole thing around that in Ridgehaven camp. Well, today is World Penguin Day. Uh, so which non-domesticated animal would you like to have as a pet? Like, for example, a penguin or some other animal that's not typically a pet, which would be one. We're in the, uh, you know, the era of learning about tigers via Netflix. So uh, what, what kind of animal would you guys like to have? Our kids are captivated by and they've turned me on to an animal card called the capybara. That'd be pretty cool. It's like a giant rodent. Like a the giant guinea pig kind of thing. What, like those ones in the fire swamp and uh, Princess Bride? Rodent, rodents of unusual size? Yes, but far cuter than the RUSs. Mike, how about you? Uh, 
I could go for a monkey. I feel like some sort of monkey friend. Uh, like, nice. like Ross capuchin, on friend. Like a capuchin yeah. monkey. Yeah, those are cute. Uh, I hear chimps are mean. So, and they like bite your face off or something. So, if there's no danger to me personally, a monkey. Gorilla could be fun too. My kids really want uh, a crocodile. And despite telling them that's not safe, Crosley, my five-year-old, is is under the full impression that he might get one for his sixth birthday. He also thinks it's great because most uh, crocodiles are about six feet long. So he's the way he's trying to sell this to me is it doubles. Not only is it a pet, but it tells us how far apart to be for social distancing. Uh, one crocodile apart from everybody. So really, he thinks it's for our safety that we have this crocodile. Uh, I Monday, imagine if you had a crocodile, you would not have any problem with physical distancing the, like when true. you took it for a walk. Could you, do they make mini gators? Can you get like a mini gator? Do they make them? You mean like genetically <laughs> modify them? Yeah, or breed them or something? Yeah, I'm thinking GMO. like a tiny, <laughs> tiny gator. Monday is National Prime Rib Day. You guys have a favorite meat? that you'd like to have, even if it's not prime rib? I like to grill the pork tenderloins. I mean, nothing beats a great burger, but. I'm a pork guy. Uh, we were exclusively vegetarian for a couple of years, and uh, pork's really the only meat that I like like to eat now after that. Filet. That would always be my way to go. Filet mignon. Yeah, you can't go wrong sure. with the filet either. That if I good. had unending financial ability, then I would probably have filet mignon on a regular basis. It's also, uh, Monday is also Babe Ruth Day. If you could be meet, rather, if you could meet one legendary sports figure from any age, who would it be? I don't know, but my great-grandfather was a dentist and did some work on Babe Ruth, has assigned to Babe Ruth Ball. I imagine that's got to... That's got to be worth something, I would think. Well, it was, uh, except he went on TV back then. And so that it could be seen a little bit better on TV, he traced over the signature, which then makes the signature. It's real. It's authentic, but it's traced over so that the camera would be able to see it. And so now it's just a great family uh, story heirloom, not worth as much he does have a it does have a bunch of other ball side and balls as well ty cobb um the whole yankees team that year has uh some ball. so there are a lot of signed baseballs he did all the the dental work for the detroit tigers back then that's an example where um had there been hd television back then you wouldn't have, he wouldn't have needed to do that in which you know so the lack of high definition potentially cost your your family, uh, some, some money. How about you, Mike? I know you're not a huge sports guy, but, but clearly there's gotta be somebody. Oh yeah. Um, I, I think Michael Jordan is just, you know, one of those figures from my childhood that was loomed so large. Although I hear he's kind of a jerk. So I don't know if that'd be fun or not, but. I heard his nickname for his bodyguard team. His nickname is Yahweh. Uh, I think I would go Muhammad Ali. I'm trying to think of, you know, sort of larger than life kind of, personalities i think Muhammad mike Ali tyson i want to hang out with mike tyson <laughs> there it is that would be an interesting day that's for sure well before we get into anything serious today mike uh you earlier this week uh, or last week i guess pleaded to come on the show this week in order to set the record straight about something that was said uh, about you on the episode last week uh we want to go ahead and give you your your chance to air your grievances 
finally, we're getting some controversy on the show. This is what I think we've been needing for our listener. Yeah, you have defamed my name and my honor. And I just, you know, need to come on here and, and set it straight. Um, actually, wasn't prepared to do this. Uh, so we were talking about Administrator's Day. And I think that, that what was said was that I looked up in the middle of conversation and said, why are we even here? As I recall, it I was, was a lot like Admiral Stockdale uh, when he was Ross Perot's running mate and in the middle of the debates kind of walked away from his podium and said, what are we doing here? Gridlock. That was a lot of what it was like. See, I recall I stood up to leave and tried to get the words out of like happy whatever we were doing. And I didn't I had a word fumble and couldn't remember what it was. So I said, nice to see you guys. It's been great. Happy whatever it is we're doing here today. Day. Or something along those lines. Yeah, that's actually no better than the way we, we framed it last week. But the record is now set straight. One is an innocent gaffe. Uh, the other is, uh, I, I don't know. Last brief, brief amnesia. Gaff. We're straight, though. Well, there is no real easy way to make this transition, so I'm just going to do it in uh, the clunkiest fashion possible. But, Mike, one of the things that we get to do to have you on here today is to talk just very briefly for a couple minutes about... Uh, campus ministry and uh, certainly your schedule in life has changed maybe uh, as much or, uh, or more than any of the other um, folks on staff of the church because of the nature of the work that you do. Um, so just tell us what, what is the life of a campus minister uh, like during quarantine? It's, uh, it's very different for one. Um, a lot of my time when campus was open was, you know, hanging out on campus, having kind of strike up conversations with folks, being a, a fixture in the cafeteria where I would often eat breakfast and lunch and snacks of some sort uh, throughout the day and have, you know, strike up meetings with folks and uh, meet with, with students and talk about the gospel and uh, just life in general. And so when campus is closed, uh, I'm not able to do that at all. Uh, and so it's been a very interesting learning period for me of trying to figure out how do I connect with college students uh, from a distance uh, when they're at home. Some of them kind of already on break mode. Uh, they don't have to you know cook or clean or anything, or they just are at home doing class online and hanging out with their family. So it's been it's been a very interesting time. Um, one thing I'm I'm learning is that. You know, we've tried a few virtual meetings and some virtual game nights and things like that and some uh, just get-togethers over Zoom, and that's not nearly as satisfying. So I think one of the big takeaways is, you know, we always have this the, the promise of, of virtual technology and the promise of connecting online and all these things, and that's okay as a substitute, but one of the, the biggest things I'm seeing is that, you know, people just aren't hungry to connect with each other uh, over Zoom or online or video chat or, you know, they'll make time for it maybe, uh, but it's just not a priority as much. And so, you know, one of the things I'm really missing is just the chance to be together with students to eat and to talk and to study the Bible together and, and things like that. So um, we've had some, I've had some interesting things where I'm trying some independent studies where I'll, I'll post a video and discussion questions and having them kind of watch it whenever they can and um, respond to it as, and that's, that seems to be going well. Uh, and then also just there, there are some students that are, are interested in maybe going deeper in, in things like prayer um, and, and Bible reading during this time, but it's definitely been slower than usual. So, 
How about with the organization um, CCO uh, with which you work, which we partner, New City? Um, anything CCO is doing or just um, trying to do to prepare you all thinking about um, sort of life in this kind of strange period of time where, where your normal uh, go-to uh, ministry rhythms are not available? Yeah, there's been a lot of emphasis on trying new things during this time and being creative. Um, there's been some webinars with some kind of big name folks, Andy Crouch and uh, um, uh, Fleming Rutledge and some other folks just talking about church's response to the time of coronavirus and things like that. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, as an organization um, and also just for me personally about what's going to happen in the fall. I think that's one of the biggest things where people are starting to think through, especially now as the semester is almost over at a large college campuses. So there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen in the fall. Is, is campus going to be opened? Are students going to come back? Uh, is it going to be mostly online? There's just a lot of uncertainty. So I think so a lot, some of it's just kind of a wait and see game to see what our reality is going to be like come August. Yeah, it seems like we're all kind of trying to figure out what's the, I mean, we all feel like all of us on staff at New City anyway, we tend to be planners and, and feel like that's good due diligence to try to plan, but it's, it feels almost impossible to do when we don't know what the next two weeks is going to look like, let alone two, three, four months from now. And so uh, the variables are, are huge in terms of what will rhythms be. And so it's everything you were drawing in pencil, but at some point it's even, is it worth drawing too much uh, at all at this point? Uh, did- you Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, good. I was just going to say, uh, there are maybe folks who are listening, who are wondering how they can be a part of the ministry, how they can pray for you, um, how they could potentially financially support. We know that there, there may be um, some, well, we know there are some significant impact uh, financially to a lot of folks during the way the economy um, has been impacted by uh, the coronavirus. And we know that that for somebody who raises their support, um, your uh, financial support may um, experience a bit of a hit as well. And so if there are folks out there who would like to support you or even just hear about how do I pray um, for Mike and for uh, CCO at Xavier, um, how do they do that? Yeah. So, um, well, for prayer, uh, the biggest thing right now is, is to pray for students, um, to pray for peace, to pray that in this time of a lot of uncertainty, um, that they would, uh, start to think about God. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of college students, even in, in just this time period, that's not on the forefront of their minds is, is, is thinking about, you know, the big questions in life. So pray that God would grab them, pray that, um, they would have a desire to, to know Christ. Um, it, one thing that's been really interesting about this, and this is another way of praying uh, in terms of kind of fall planning. Um, when you are, everything is a distance, you kind of got to focus on what matters. And what I'm, I found is what matters is not trying to plan fun events because you can't really do events now, but really the ministry of the word, uh, helping students to to pray and to, to read scriptures and to answer big questions about Jesus. Those are, those are the things that are really um, the most vital. And so one, one of the things I'm thinking about in the fall, and this is a way that I would love folks to pray is just for wisdom and how to make those things uh, even more front and center than they ever have been, because that is, I mean, especially in, in, in times of global pandemics, that's what's most important um, for financial support. Thankfully the, we've, the Lord's provided, and we haven't seen anything uh, kind of hit us yet, but um one place to go would be www.ccojubilee.org. And then in the right-hand corner, there's a big green uh, donate 
link that you can click and you can find my last name, Prevatera, and just go to the PEs. And if you'd like to make a reoccurring donation, that's a great way. Um, and that'll also get you on my uh, newsletter that I send out so you can kind of stay in touch with what's going on on campus and how to pray and what's God's, what God is doing at Xavier. Thanks, Mike. So that's ccojubilee.org. Look for the big green donate button. Scroll down and look for Prevatera. You can get his um, prayer letter that way, as well as uh, setting up a way to donate if you'd like to contribute uh, to the work of discipleship and evangelism uh, on the campus at Xavier University. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, then we're going to come back and talk a little bit about uh, the Emmaus Road, Luke chapter 24, and Easter, and what we should be thinking about uh, during this uh, this time of Easter tide in the middle of Corona tide, as it were. We're going to take a break. You know, guys, uh, one of the best things about spring and summer is the ability to go barefoot, get that feeling of sort of the grass underneath your feet. You guys like that? Is that a good feeling? I don't like yeah. that at all. You Are you serious? Really? No. no. Wow. I like to wear shoes. I know shoes. Brian does. Brian, you like being barefoot. I do, you know, as long as uh, I'm not on sharp objects. Well, of course. Right, right. Well, here, actually, this is better. Uh, there's good news because not only can you get that feeling, but you can protect your feet from those sharp objects because there's a product that can bring you that sort of grass under your feet sensation uh, all day long, inside, outside, rain or shine. And it's called GFF, grass flip-flops. Grass flip-flops are the highest quality synthetic grass sandals on the market. If you were looking for an Earth Day gift for that special someone, <laughs> this, is their, this is their advertising, uh, an Earth Day gift. Do, do people give Earth Day gifts regularly uh, for that special someone and didn't know what to get? Well, this is it. As the old adage goes, take only pictures and memories, leave only footprints. I've never heard that old adage. Uh, but with grass flip-flops, you will leave your mark with good vibes and community of the grass flip-flops grassroots movement behind you. We here at Grass Flip-Flops are dedicated to deliver well-made synthetic grass sandals to each customer. Our synthetic grass flip-flops don't just look like amazing green grass. They conform to the wearer's foot to create a natural plush slice of paradise and then last thing, sliding on a pair of our grass sandals will instantly take the wear, weather, wearer to summer afternoons. The smell of fresh cut grass in the air as the golden sunset paints the skyscape beautiful. That's a little breathy there. At so, the these, this is a real product someone actually made? Not only is this a real product, Mark, wow. but uh, I have to admit something. I made an impulse buy upon discovering this product yesterday. So mine are apparently in the mail on their way. And so I'll be able to tell you, uh, how it was this, it was from the Jay Peterman catalog, because that sounds like something that Elaine would have written for the Jay Peterman catalog. Right. The smell of fresh, fresh cut grass in the air. Sunset paints the skyscape. Yeah, that could be right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but here's what I'm thinking. This has the potential to spur on like a whole range of products, right? Like of what kind of sensations you may want under your feet. If you could, and I, Mike, Mike didn't seem to want uh, the feeling of grass. I want no sensations on my feet. You want nothing under your feet? Just socks, maybe carpet. Know. See, I think I would like sand. Like if they could create a sandal that simulated walking on the beach, 
Now that I could be really, really into. Maybe, maybe even like a, uh, like a nice cool mud. <laughs> maybe that's not as good. No. Nope. What about like a, what about like a shirt for when you like, when you've been caught in the rain, like if you like getting caught in the rain and your shirts just does, never dries, that could be a good one. I just like wet shirts. Like I got caught in a rainstorm. Yes. I think that could. That Burning could coals. If you like a breeze, uh, I think you could get a hat that had like some sort of little fan attached to it where you constantly have a, a breeze, you know, uh, going. I think there's, you know, really a whole range of products that could come out of this. But anyway, check it out. GFF Grass Flip Flops, our sponsor for this week, uh, weekend edition of Marginalia. Well, guys, it's Easter and uh, we are studying together the words of resurrection or what we're calling words of resurrection words spoken by jesus after the resurrection before his ascension words of life spoken into a world of sin and sickness and death and i can't think of anything that we all need to hear now uh, more than this always the case of course but especially when mortality when sickness uh, when death um when a hurt and heartache are on our mind and the world in which we live, the fragility of the things in which we uh, tend to trust, uh, we need words of life. And so this past weekend, we looked at uh, the Emmaus Road story, two disciples on the road away from Jerusalem, away from where they thought God was going to do this extraordinary thing. Here they are. They find themselves disillusioned, uh, confused. And some way in the way I said it on Sunday was that, you know, they had lost their story. They they thought they knew what was going to happen or they had a good idea of what they were arranging their life around. And then Jesus died and they thought that meant the end of all that. And so they're walking away, uh, away from Jerusalem, away from what they think were their hopes and dreams and God, what they thought were God's purposes for the world. And it's in the midst of this time that Jesus meets them there and gives them what we call it a story for the storyless. Well, uh, Frederick Buechner uh, I believe it's in his book, uh, The Magnificent Defeat. Uh, he says, um, talking, trying to apply this Emmaus story to all of our individual situations. He says this, he says, Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die, that even the noblest ideas that men have had, ideas about love and freedom and justice, have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish men for selfish ends. Let's talk about that for a second. What do you think when you hear that um, application or, or that way of trying to make sense of it from, from Beekner? I think it's a, a fascinating take on the passage. Um, mostly because, you know, when I read the story, that's not the first thing my mind gravitates toward. It's, it's the, you know, the story of Jesus teaching and the story of, um, you know, the disciples being surprised at who he really is, this person on the road. But um, this idea of Emmaus being a place where, you know, they're going, they're forgetting, they've, they've forgotten what's happened. They're not sure about what's happened. Um, I think he's on that because I think we all do that in various ways. Um, we do have our own Emmauses or things that we, you know, we can proclaim one thing about who Jesus is and what that means. And then functionally, we live a totally different way. Or, and a lot of times I think, you know, most of us, many of us are in this, in the Christian life are kind of where these disciples at on the road to Emmaus many days, um, rather than at the end of the story where they are, are 
fully aware and fully cognizant of who Jesus is and what that means for them. Yeah, Mike, we were just talking in another thread somewhere else about the amusing ourselves to death. Uh, you know, I think it's quite possible to to have our amusement or our uh, distraction found in those kinds of things. You know, we, we even have this, you know, relatively new term of binging, you know, something where it's like you could just go for, I mean, unend, unending time. What What is it? the next episode will start in five, four, three, and then, you know, you're off. And, you know, if I've got unending seasons of comedies or drama, or, you know, I've been watching the West Wing while I exercise, you know, to escape the current political reality by looking to this other, there's so many different, um, you know, ways that we can amuse ourselves to the point of complete, you know, numbness where we've anesthetized ourselves with distraction. Um, you know, there's no end to this. Cause I think, you know, video games, like our kids love playing Minecraft, but that's a, a hole that they go down and all of a sudden it's like, they're just gone for ages. So it, you know, in our age and there's probably no ends to those things um, to avoid, you know, facing reality. And I was just thinking about the, the movement of the story, too. I was, I was looking through Luke 24 again. Um, and it, it is interesting. I, mean, I think what Beekner is bringing out is a, is a little detail in the story of their, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're, they, they have heard about what has happened. They know about the crucifixion. They've heard about the possibility of Jesus' resurrection, but they're leaving Emmaus, uh, or they're leaving toward Emmaus. And then what's, what's really interesting about this is once they find out who Jesus actually is, they turn back to Jerusalem to tell everybody. Um, yeah, so it is a fascinating. So, so you can you can see them. They're like, oh, we've heard all these things, but we're not really sure if they're true. Um, yeah, they've almost got it, don't yeah. they? I mean, when, yeah. when they uh, somebody calls it, um, one of the commentators calls it the uh, the barely incomplete creed. Right? There's a there's an Emmaus creed in here, right? Where they uh, Jesus comes alongside them. They don't know it's Jesus. He says, "What are, what are you talking about?" And first they kind of chide him, which is kind of comical in the story. Like, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened? And of course, the reader knows he's actually the only one who does really know what's happened because it happened to him, all the events surrounded him. But anyway, gets past that. And he says, uh, you know what, what, no, seriously, what are the things you were talking about? And they go on and they, they describe uh, essentially almost an apostles creed kind of section on who Jesus is, right? Jesus of Nazareth, he's a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And he, he did all these wonderful things. And then he was, uh, Killed. He was delivered up by the chief priests and the rulers. He was crucified. Uh, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But besides all this, now other people are saying the tomb is empty and that they've seen him again. So they are, they, they're almost there. It's all right there. All the pieces are there. Except they, the I believe or the we believe of the creeds. Yes, yes. And it's not till the end, right, when they, they do see that. And then they go back and tell the other disciples and they say, indeed, right? He is risen indeed. Yes, yeah, so they've got the all, all the puzzles. They just can't all the pieces, but they just can't put it can't put it together. But it's very similar to the uh, you know the apostles uh, in, at the end of John's gospel, where they you know they read Jesus appeared, uh, they know he's resurrected, uh, and they go back to fishing. Like they go back to the thing that they where he found him in the first place. What they used to do their former occupations. Yeah, but to study in that passage for the sermon in a couple of weeks, it is, it's, you know, let's go fishing, you know, and it's, it's 
what they used to do. Uh, they're not, yeah, John 21, we'll get there, you know, and it's, uh, it, it is kind of amazing. It's like, that's a very familiar activity for them. It's maybe comfortable, um, but it's old, it's old activity. It's not what they've been doing. They've been fishing for people and now they're going back to fish for fish. You know, one of the things, maybe the, the phrase that jumped out at me the most um, in studying this last week was uh, Luke 24, verse 21, where they say, and I actually think this is maybe maybe one of the saddest statements in all of the New Testament, um, where they say, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. These two guys slowly slouching off, walking away from Jerusalem, uh, totally different than the way uh, they would have been celebrating a week before as Jesus enters Jerusalem right on Palm Sunday. Here they are a week later, but we had hoped, but we had hoped, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem uh, Israel. How does that phrase and, and how does it connect to us um, or to you now just thinking about uh, applying to our context? Well, it, it, it is tough to hear. It feels like a death knoll of hope, um, you know, because of the past tense, we had hoped, um, you know, I, I'm, uh, we had had a lot of hopes for stuff we were going to do with the church, um, over these times, you know, it feels like, I mean, Easter was a big one that we missed. We've got the flying pig coming up that we would have done. I, you know, I'm having to like sit with my kids. We've got a sixth grader and, you know, it's starting to dawn on her, especially now that school's out, that um, she's not going to get to do all the end of sixth grade stuff, the sixth grade, uh, end of sixth grade uh, field trip that they do and the moving up ceremony and all these things. You know, she's not a graduating senior. And I think for those kids, they're maybe suffering more, you know, that we had hoped has a real sort of lament to it. Um, it, it is sad. It's like, are these guys, it, is it really dead? You know, I wonder if there's a, if there's a, a glimmer of hope left in there. I mean, even with lament, there is still um, maybe a, a bit of deep down, you still, still kind of hope a little bit, you know, I don't know. There's a reality, especially in the situation that we're in now is where it's one thing to believe something. It's another thing when all the, uh, you know, circumstances of your life are telling you something different, you know, they're, you know, you wonder if these guys, you know, they want to believe in this and yet they saw him crucified. They saw him taken away. And, you know, <laughs> most of the time dead people don't come back. Uh, and so it's, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, you know, we had hoped he was the one, but he's dead. Um, and I think in, in the circumstances that we're in, I'm finding it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, um, I mean, I believe that God is on the throne, right? I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that God is in control of history and is more powerful than viruses. And, you know, the church has withstood the rise and fall of nations for thousands of years and yet, uh, when you turn on the news, um, or you dwell on, you know, the stock market or whatever, it, those things are sometimes louder than the, uh, the voice of God or the, the voice of truth. And so I think there's this, like, there's this temptation to look at, I mean, to walk by faith or, or to walk by sight, not by faith. Right. Um, and that's kind of what, where these guys are out there. They're, they're looking around, they see, you know, Jesus is dead. Some women said that he had come back but hey we don't know about that one um and just to go to Emmaus I, I think there's a real temptation to that 
Yeah, I mean, there's the sense in which, right, they had um, what they thought was a pretty good idea of what Jesus redeeming Israel would look like. And that involved him coming as a, a deliverer from an oppressive uh, occupying power. And instead, what do they see? They see that power crushes him, right? He doesn't crush them. They, they crush him. And, you know, they also had rearranged their lives around these things, right? Followers of Jesus were uprooting, uh, the things that, uh, were their normal rhythms in order to follow him. And the hope was the kingdom's going to come and we're going to get jobs in this new administration, place of power and significance perhaps. And now all of that looks gone because um, Jesus is hanging on a cross and uh, the remnants of that kingdom they thought was going to be there was in a sign, uh, a mocking sign hung above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And um, to have that rug pulled out from under them like that, you can empathize, or at least I can. Um, we had hoped, we had hoped, uh, we had hoped. And so now, yeah, as you talk about all these little mini uh, deaths that we experience and sometimes very real ones, right? There's people getting sick and, and dying, but there's also all those losses. Each one of those we experience as, um, you know, of chances of, of times to mourn, um, things that we had planned, things that we had dreamed, things that we look forward to. And some of that's, um, relatively minor, but some of it, it feels big, uh, in the time we had hoped, we had hoped, we'd hoped. And, uh, and yet uh, the good news of Easter is, is this is where Easter starts, right? It starts with Mary Magdalene grieving, uh, the loss of her friend. It starts with, um, these guys who think they've lost their way, their story, their place in life. And that's where the risen Jesus shows up. And I think he can show up for us and does show up for us too. And thinking about that in particular, uh, when Jesus does come to them, uh, what does he do or what does he spend his time with them doing? He gives them a Bible lesson, right? He's retelling the story using the lens of scripture and explaining it to them. You'd think of, of all the times in the history of the world when it would be tempting to say, you know, well, we really don't need the Bible. We just need to commune with Jesus, you know? Uh, you would think that would be, I mean, he's there, right there with them. And yet, what does he spend his time doing? Like, guys, let's study the Bible. Let's look at the Bible. So what does that mean for our, our notion about the role of Scripture uh, in our life, our ministry, our figuring out um, quarantine, but also just our, our life together as a community in our city more broadly? What's the role of Scripture? Well, it is interesting. They were kind of languishing without hope. You know, we had hopes. And Jesus, uh, in verse 25, says they were slow of heart to believe. And how do you, how do you speed the heart to believe is uh, by going to the scriptures, restoring, um, going back to the story. You know, you, you were slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So if we you know, we, we are that way, right? We fail to hope. We end up slow of heart to believe. And so what do we do? What does Jesus do? He leads them right back to the scriptures. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's easy. I was having a conversation with um, one of the kids and we were, I was saying, well, why don't, why don't you read, you know, why don't you read this, you know, the gospel of John? And the response was, I've, I've already read that. Uh, and so it ended, it ended into a, a good conversation about like, well, why do we read scripture? You could say, well, I've read the Bible. I, I read it cover to cover, or I've read that portion again. Why would I go back to it? Well, these guys had clearly read this stuff before. Um, 
and sometimes it's, it's revisiting it because our situation has changed. And so we go back to it. Uh, if our hearts are slow of heart to believe, uh, if we want to quicken our hearts to believe, we've got to go back to the story and sometimes to the same well that we've been to over and over and over again. Um, the, the word meets us fresh and quickens our heart to believe when we may be languishing without hope, um, you know, or are slow of heart. So it's, you know, going back to the scriptures ourselves regularly every day, you know. That is one of the reasons why worship and scripture reading is often likened to eating, to nourishment, you know, rather than say a seminar. Uh, seminar, you tend once, you get what you need from it and you move on. Whereas eating, right, you don't get to ch- check off the box and say, well, I ate, I ate before, <laughs> but you kind of continually keep coming back to the well, as you said, can keep coming back for nourishment and refreshment in the scriptures. Yeah. That makes yeah, me think yeah. of, uh, I've been reading this little, this is a really nerdy thing right now, but a fruitful exhortation to the reading and knowledge of Holy scripture. Uh, it's by Thomas Cramner, the great English reformer. Um, but he says about scripture, he says, these books therefore ought to be much in our hands and in our eyes and in our ears, in our mouths, but most of all in our hearts, the scripture of God is heavenly food for our souls the hearing and keeping of it makes us blessed, sanctifies us, and makes us holy. It turns our souls as a light. It is a light lantern to our feet. It is a sure, steadfast, and everlasting instrument of salvation. It gives wisdom to the humble and lowly hearts. It comforts, makes glad, cheers, and cherishes our conscience. It is more excellent jewel or treasure than any gold or precious stone. It is more sweet than honey or honeycomb. And he goes on and on and all these just kind of accolades of scripture, but... Um, this is actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible, because for me, when I first understood what was going on here, it actually opened up the rest of the Bible for me, because prior to understanding where Jesus says, you know, all the scriptures, the law, the writings, uh, the prophets, they're all about me. Um, prior to seeing Jesus saying, this, if this whole thing points to me, before that, I didn't know what to do with some of the, like the Old Testament or some of the other passages. So for, for my own story, this having this passage kind of taught and understood, like changed the way I looked at scripture even and opened it up for me in a new way. Yeah. And, and that's, you kind of had the experience there that the, um, these disciples on the road must've had when it says their hearts burned within them, right? They began to connect the dots, understand uh, the story of scripture, but it began to, to give them, um, insight, passion, uh, excitement, uh, for the word of God. That's maybe a good place to leave it because um, that's, of course, as well, where uh, the Easter message, uh, the resurrection, which is uh, a focal point, uh, the focal point, you might say, of the New Testament as it's all rushing forward old and new you know, toward the victory that's achieved in Jesus Christ. But the Easter message in particular is not uh, something that's just to be um, uh, not. It puts us to work in the world. It sends us out. And so I'll, I'll just read this. This is from N.T. Wright's. Um, book for for all God's worth, true worship, and the calling of the church. He says, but if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world of injustice, violence, and degradation or endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take it away, and Freud was probably right 
to say that Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche probably was right to say that it was for wimps. Of course, that's not what Christianity is about. We have a Savior who died, and he lives again. Hallelujah. Have a great week, you guys. It was nice talking to you. Yeah, man, likewise. Cheers. Peace, everybody. Take care. Later on. Au revoir. Adios. Uh, Auf Wiedersehen. Uh,